Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. So as I'm sure anyone who's come to this uh, symposium over the last few years recognizes, uh, we've been really blessed by having uh, Randy Sheckman and Jack Shostak, Nobel Prize winners, uh, speak to us. Uh, this tradition is continuing today as we are honored to have uh, Edward Moser, who in 2014 shared the uh, Nobel Prize in Medicine with uh, Mae Britt and John O'Keefe. So they won the Nobel Prize for uh, finding cells that create a positional sensing system in the brain. And that may sound a little esoteric to all of you, but I assure you, all of you have experienced in a day-to-day life uh, the real wonder of what they have shown the cellular instantiation of. Um, a matter of fact, those of you who are on the campus for the first time probably experienced what I did, uh, leaving A6 and trying to find the way to the Torch Club. You walk along the High Line, you recognize buildings, and you have one simple line in your head to get from A to B, and that's all you get. And then the next day, maybe you walk along the main campus by the uh, palm trees and you go up some steps. And at some point, almost magically in your head, appears a map of the Abu Dhabi campus. But how does that happen? Now, that's a puzzle that uh, biologists have struggled with since the 30s and 40s when uh, Watson, Hall, and probably most notably Tolman struggled with the uh, question of how we incorporate a physical world and create a map of the world within our brain. But it was really only with the work of uh, John O'Keefe and Jonathan Jostrowski, who actually was the person who first taught me physiology uh, in my undergrad, that we began to get some sort of handle on the uh, cellular instantiation of this. And what they discovered in the hippocampus were cells called place cells. And that was this remarkable group of cells that when you record from them and put an animal in open field would only fire at a certain point in that field. So the question of course was out there of how these cells learned position in space and accurately reported it. So this is really where Edward and May Britt came into it. They had finished their PhD with Pierre Anderson uh, a notable scientist of himself who you heard Rob Malenka's talk today and his talk about LTP. As a matter of fact, Pierre Anderson was the one to first recognize the phenomena. So Edward and May Brick came over to John O'Keefe's lab in 1996, not so long ago. And uh, in three weeks, uh, John O'Keefe very generously taught them a lot about how he did his methods and approaches. And then they went back to Trondheim where they have really literally put that place on the map. And what they discovered there was essentially the cells that really probably are helping the, uh, the brain create that positional system. What they recognized was that the place cells in the hippocampus are not well suited to computationally on their own create place. The hippocampus is this feed-forward system where inf- information flows through one way and doesn't really uh, Uh, have recurrent connections that you might expect to need to create place information. What they recognized was that the antirhinal cortex had this big projection onto the hippocampus. And in looking in the hippocampus, what they discovered 
are what you can see in the title, these cells called grid cells that literally form a Cartesian grid within the entorhinal cortex and create an invariant uh, uh, pattern of cells that create space that's scalable and rigid and immutable uh, and actually are probably, if I was going to make a bet, are probably going to turn out to be even more important than the place cells in creating space in the brain. So uh, that is a very brief introduction to his work, and he'll do far better. So I will, at this point, hand over the mic to him, and uh, I'm sure you will enjoy him as much as I have in hearing him in the past. Edward? Thank you, God, for that nice introduction. Also, thank you for the Arabic introduction, although I didn't understand much, but I assume it was very nice. <laughs> so I would like to uh, uh, thank you a lot for the invitation to uh, this part of the world. I've never been in Emirates or anywhere near before. And it's exciting to see the young campus and the science you're building up. I think it's uh, a very wise initiative. Uh, I think we have some things in common in Norway and in the Emirates, which is oil. And uh, everyone who works with oil knows that the oil doesn't last forever, and there has to be a future afterwards. So investing in science, I think, is uh, a very uh, smart initiative. So what I will do today is that I will uh, uh, give you a historical background, a brief historical background about uh, the findings that led up to uh, um, our work, which uh, uh, Gord uh, briefly summarized. And then I will use uh, the later parts of my talk to uh, um, even bring up some new uh, work that is either not published yet or, um, or just published. But I promise to try to make it as accessible as possible. So let's begin um, with one of the biggest challenges in, uh, in uh, science today, which is to um, bridge two levels of understanding. It is what we call psychology, which is um, uh, the science about uh, um, the human mind, about cognition, uh, how we think, how we remember, how we uh, perceive, how we pay attention to things, how we interpret things on one hand, and on the other hand, what we call physiology, which is what's going on in the brain, the activity of neurons. So how, how can neurons in uh, a human brain or in an animal brain give rise to all the things that uh, we uh, experience as feelings or thoughts? So this is a human brain and a cartoon which illustrates what it could look like inside. Of course, it's very, very much simplified. But these are neurons nerve cells, they connect to each other via uh, uh, this, which is called synapses. So the processes that go out like this, electrical activity, chemicals, neurotransmitters that are pushed over to the uh, receiving neuron. And uh, then um, this is not something that happens just in a few places. This is actually, first, there are approximately estimated on average 86 billion neurons in the human brain, and uh, the average is estimated to be approximately 10,000 synapses or 10,000 connections of each neuron to other neurons. So within all of these many, many, many connections, our experiences 
are stored, the information is stored in the brain. So the question is then, how can we access that information? Will we ever be able to find out what's going on in these molecules uh, somewhere, distributed places all over the brain? Uh, how can that give rise to thoughts or memories or feelings? Very hard question. But uh, indeed, neuroscience is actually making some progress on this uh, uh, question. So I will take you first 100 years back in history, begin exactly where God started, namely in uh, the early days of uh, psychology, experimental psychology, and especially in uh, the field uh, um, which was called behaviorism. It is... Uh, uh, experimental psychology that uh, started out with uh, at least one of the starters was uh, John Watson and then Clark Hull, B.F. Skinner, uh, many others. But what they had in common was that they tried to break down uh, psychology or behavior. Behavior is very, very complicated, but break it down in the very smallest elements and uh, maybe too much, but uh, they defined behaviors as responses. So response could be, for example, that I lift this glass, that's one response, or that I walk to the left like this, but then define the smallest chunks of behavior and then try to determine how are these smallest chunks of behavior related to things that go on in the outside world. And what's going on in the outside world, they call stimuli, and then they worked with laws between responses and stimuli in the outside world. And they found out, for example, that if a response, like lifting the glass, is followed by a reward, then uh, that could change the frequency by which I lift the glass, and so on. So this science actually uh, made it possible not only to describe behaviors, but actually even to predict behaviors. So I'll show you one example. This is um, a movie that's illustrating one of Skinner's uh, achievements, namely to, to uh, train uh, pigeons to play ping pong, which they do very easily because the trick is simply to have them push the ball over like this. And whenever one fails, like you will see very soon now, this one fails, then there's a reward to pick up for the other one. <laughs> and then they begin again. Now this one fails and there's a reward for the other one. And they do this all the time. And in this way, you can get pigeons to play ping pong. And in the same way as you train dogs, because you just give the reward right after the dog does the right thing. So this was quite successful because it could both describe and predict behaviors. But many scientists thought that this was just too simple because behavior is so much more than just a chain of responses and stimuli. So one of those who thought this was too simple was uh, Edward Tolman, who uh, worked at the University of California at Berkeley. And uh, he had, um, in his view, uh, you couldn't simply break down behaviors into long sequences or chains of, uh, of responses. He thought that you had to, to understand behavior of rats or humans or whatever species you have to consider that in their mind, in their brain, they actually have uh, um, ideas or maps of, uh, of the environment. So um, 
He thought that you could explain rat behavior and human behavior by uh, actually um, uh, introducing concepts like what he had called a cognitive map. That's a, a map or a structural representation of the environment. So he based this on experiments that he did in his labs, and all these experiments were with rats because the rat was already then uh, uh, the favorite uh, research uh, laboratory animal for uh, experimental psychology. On one of the experiments, which is shown here, so he trained rats to, start, to go through a maze. So this is a maze seen from above. It's a central arena. A rat starts here, goes through here, and then goes through an alley here, and finally gets to a goal, and at the goal there is a reward, usually some food or chocolate or whatever. Um, then the rat does this many, many, many times and learns this path. But then on a given day, uh, the environment is changed. The rat gets to this central arena here, and now there are many alleys out. And uh, one of them actually leads directly to the reward place. And what it turns out is that the rat chooses then the direct path instead of going up the original one here and then taking a right turn here. And we may think this is obvious because we would all do the same, but it isn't obvious if you consider um, the uh, history of experimental psychology up until then, because then people thought that uh, behavior was just a sequence of things that happened in a row, and then, uh, then the rat should actually have taken the original path, because that was what was, was trained. So the fact that the rat could take the direct path, that actually meant that uh, rats can take shortcuts, and if they can take shortcuts, that means that they must have an internal map of the environment. There's no other way they could really f go uh, take the straight path. But it was very important observation, very important idea. Of course, it was extremely controversial for about, actually, almost 20 years. But, uh, uh, and one of the reasons why it was so controversial was that no one could really point to these maps. Where were they? They had no uh, idea. Uh, tools had still not been developed to find them in the brain. But uh, things changed, uh, new technologies came, and then finally, as Gord mentioned, uh, there was uh, John O'Keefe and Jonathan Dostrovsky, who uh, in 1971 uh, found uh, something that could be the basis of uh, these internal maps in the brain. And uh, what John O'Keefe found was uh, what was called place cells. So the way he did this was that he recorded from rats that were running either in boxes on different types of mazes, running around, uh, and then he recorded, from acti uh, recorded activity from the brain of uh, the rat. Uh, so very small electrodes, uh, sensors, uh, implanted into the brain. They are so thin that you can almost not see them. The ones we use today are 17 micrometers wide, so... They just go between the cells and then are able to pick up electrical activity from the cells without damaging them. Signals, those electrical signals are then uh, transferred through a cable to a computer and uh, then stored. So this is the experimental setting, and now I'll show the result found in uh, 1971. So this is a movie. You see a rat from above. Here, rat uh, has, uh, for the occasion, has a cable connected to the brain, and we are recording activity from one single 
place cell in the hippocampus. This goes through the cable up to the computer and then is stored. So when I play this movie, you will hear uh, sounds, pop, pop sounds. And that, uh, those sounds, each time there is a sound pop, that means that the cell is firing once because we convert it to, to a sound so that you can uh, get an idea of when and where the cell fires. And each time the cell is active, you'll also see a red dot. So let's just start the movie and then you'll get an idea of what a place cell is. Oops, sorry. So what you see is that this uh, cell in the hippocampus is active whenever the rat is up in this area here, in the upper left part of the box. When it's walking around down here, of course, this is played uh, much, much faster than the rat walks. But uh, I think you get the idea. The rat is walking around, collecting small crumbles of chocolate. And each time it comes up here, the cell is active. And you can see that uh, this particular cell in the area of the brain that's called the hippocampus is, uh, has, is uh, what O'Keefe called a place cell. And the reason why he called it a place cell is that it is active at one place and not many other places. So it has its own place of firing. And this area here we call a place field. So you can also show it in a different way. Uh, so this is just a color-coded way to show it. So this is, again, the box seen from above. Red color means high activity, and blue color means no activity, and then green and yellow is just in between. So um, O'Keefe then, together with uh, Lynn Nadell, uh, suggested then in 1978 that these cells, um, he then knew that there are many of them. I mean, this wasn't just one cell. I mean, there are thousands of them in the hippocampus uh, of the brain. And uh, each of them have different preferred areas that, uh, where they are active. So because they knew that there were so many such cells and each fired in different places in, in the world, they suggested that hippocampus is actually the brain's uh, cognitive map or the map that Tolman, you remember Tolman with the shortcuts, uh, suggested some 30 years earlier. And... Uh, this has later been shown to be true in some sort of way because if you take the activity of uh, not one place, but let's say maybe a hundred, feed that into a computer while the rat is walking around, then because different cells have different preferred regions, the computer can immediately tell where the rat is with no delay at all because the combination of activity in different places of the box is, is, is unique. So um, that was end of the 1970s, and then, uh, um, yeah, then a lot uh, was learned about how play cells uh, work, uh, what properties they have, uh, but there were still some questions that were unresolved. And then in 1995, when uh, Maybrit and I went to O'Keefe, then. Uh, we were there just for a short time, but then uh, went to Trondheim in Norway in 1996. This is what it looks like up there. And uh, uh, set up our lab. And um, one, uh, maybe the main question uh, that we started out with is one that hadn't really been resolved, which is uh, where does this place cell signal come from and how is it generated? 
And that's actually a deep mystery, because these place cells, they are not part of our sensory system. They're not uh, close to the eyes or the ears or whatever. They are deep, deep into the cortex in the brain. There are many, many stages before you get in there. You almost can't get further in. So how is it then possible that uh, such a place signal is made? Because, I mean, it's not like the senses, like let's imagine the visual sense where you get... uh, you get visual information through the eyes and then the brain somehow extracts that information uh, out of the visual uh, input and forms internal images of, of what you see. It's not like that because there are no place receptors. So there, there, there's no place sense of place, right? So, I mean, there's not one single sense of place. And still, each of the cells have so clearly defined areas of activity. So how is this made up? That's a deep mystery. But that uh, was still not resolved, so at least that started some of our work. And um, the first experiment we actually did was to uh, um, ask if this was created within the hippocampus, and hippocampus is the part of the brain where they were discovered. So hippocampus is shown here in a rodent brain, uh, and so in a it could be uh, a rat, but I think it's actually from a rabbit. But it looks very similar. So this is a rat brain or a, a rabbit brain, and uh, this is the cortex. And then the hippocampus looks like a sausage that's just somewhat embedded under the neocortex, like this. And uh, in the human brain, it's more in the, it's in the temporal lobe and more behind the ears, in a way, very deep like this. Uh, but it looks like a sausage there, too, different shape somewhat, but... Uh, but we all have a hippocampus. So this hippocampus, if you uh, make a transaction through it or a slice through it, it looks like this. So there are different sub-areas of the hippocampus. Uh, I'm not going to emphasize the names of each of them, but what's essential here is that it's a loop of connections. Connections come in here from what is called entorhinal cortex, go through these substations here, and the final uh, station here is CA1 before it goes back again. So CA1 is the area where O'Keefe did his play cell recordings. And uh, then to my point, so this was in the mid-1990s. So an idea at that time was that uh, uh, this signal somehow was created in this loop here. So the obvious thing to do, which we did, which anyone could have done, was simply to uh, record first from uh, here, like O'Keefe, I found places. So you, here you see the trace of the rat when it's walking around in the box, and each red dot is where the cell was active. So this cell had a place field in the middle of the box. And then what we did was to silence or inactivate or even remove a part of the circuit here so that it broke the loop here so that information that came in here couldn't go through the loop and to uh, the CA1 here. And then, of course, if this signal was created in this loop and you block it like this, then there should be no play signal anymore. So that was the prediction. And then this is the result. So what you see here is is, uh, seven different cells and it's now the color-coded version again. Uh, and what you see is that even when you block all the, the loop here, 
you see that actually all these cells still have a preferred firing area. This cell is active here in the middle, this one in the middle a little further down, this one uh, further down, this one up to the left, and so on. So maybe it's a little bit more blurred, but by and large, we didn't really succeed to remove the play cell signal, which was somewhat surprising. So then we wonder, could it either, it meant that it was created within this area by itself, which we thought was unlikely for different reasons, or there was this other connection that actually came in directly, the shortcut in from this entorhinal area here, which I put in with a red arrow. And at that time when this diagram was made, it wasn't even considered, people did almost ignored it. But that made us actually go out to this area here, entorhinal cortex, and start to do similar recordings there and see if we found anything interesting there. And that indeed happened. So now I show a movie again. We'll now look at a rat that's going, doing exactly the same as the rat on the previous movie. It will walk around and collect chocolate pieces. And the chocolate thing is just a trick to get them to walk around and visit every possible place. And then we will be um, recording from one single cell. There is no sound here now, but you will see white dots whenever the cell is active. And this cell is recorded from this area, entorhinal cortex. So this is a rat brain seen from the, from the back. And this uh, colored uh, thing here is the entorhinal cortex, the area that feeds into the play cells in the hippocampus. So let's start the movie, and you now can see what that looks like. So we wonder then first if there were play cells out in the entorhinal cortex too, and actually the first impression is somewhat discouraging because you see the cell is active in many different places, not any particular place. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there, a little bit there. And now we speed up so you can see it better. And, uh, well, first it was not so promising, but then you can actually see here there is some regularity to this. So first of all, there seem to be many uh, firing areas, many activity areas. It's not spread randomly around. There are actually several places, maybe one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven places where the cell is active. And in between those places, there's nothing. And the other thing you might notice here is that there is even some pattern in these activity blobs here because they are, the distance between them is not random. They seem to be as far away from each other as possible. And that was became clearer when we increased the size of the environment. So here the rat is walking in a box that is 220 by 220 centimeters, so much bigger than the previous one. The gray thing here is the path of the rat that's walking around, and each black dot is where the cell was, what one particular cell was active. And now you can see that there's, there are many, many fields, but there is certainly some regularity and that regularity maybe you see more easily here because I put these red lines on top. And you can see that it's a triangular pattern, or if you want, a hexagonal pattern that repeats itself all over the environment. So it is as if these cells formed a grid that covered the entire box. And because it formed a grid, the obvious name was a grid cell. Uh, and... Uh, 
So it turned out that many of the cells in this area of the brain, the input to the hippocampus, they uh, had these properties. So uh, grid cells actually turned out to be the most common type of cell in that area. And it obviously has metric properties. It contains information about distance and direction, what is used or how it's used. That's still not so well understood. But the information is there. And uh, for that reason, uh, both we and others then thought that this might be actually another part of the internal map of the brain, but differs in some very important ways from the hippocampal map, which I will come back to very, very soon. For now, just let's say, state that uh, different grid cells have different properties. And one of the differences is that they all have what we call a different phase. And the phase means just the XY location in the, uh, uh, in the box of the firing field. So I illustrated this with three different grid cells, one green, one blue, and one red. And you can see that uh, all of these are grid cells because they have this repeating triangular pattern, but they are shifted in the XY direction. So uh, together they cover uh, most of the space, actually, because they, have they fire in different places, although they all have this pattern. And it turns out that, that in any given place in this brain area, in the entorhinal cortex, different cells have different phases, so that altogether they, uh, you don't need many cells before the entire space is covered. But it's apparently very, quite random, almost entirely random organization. Um, but that differs very much from another property of the grid cell, which is the scale of the grid cell. So how, how big are these dots? How far away are they from each other? Because it turns out that this map in the entorhinal cortex is very much organized when it comes to the size of the grids, grid scale, uh, or the scale of the grid. So this is a rack brain seen from the side. And the red area here is uh, the relevant area, namely the, what we call the medial entorhinal cortex. This is the top, and this is the bottom. And as you go from the top, and then you go, just go further, 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 further down, what happens is that you start out with the smallest scale, and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And up, up here, this is again a box where the rat is walking around. Up here, the distance is something like 30 centimeters between each dot. Down here, it can be probably several meters. So it seems like we have maps of different scales, and they start out with the smallest scales at the top, and then it goes just down. And, and then that, of course, raised the question when we saw this uh, more or less uh, at the same time as we found the cells. Then uh, we wonder, is this a continuous scale, or do you actually have a fixed number of scales. Uh, so you have one map at one scale, another map at another scale, and a third map at yet another scale. Is that the way it works, or is it just uh, smoothly transforming from small to large here? That we couldn't tell at that time because we weren't able to record many enough cells at the same time. So it was hard to because if you average across many animals and they have slightly different scales, you won't be able to tell if it is step-like or if it's smooth. But uh, some years later, in 2012, then uh, we actually had the technology so that we were able to record from up to 200 cells, at this, grid cells at this, in the same animal. 
And this is one where we had about 50 cells. And uh, what you now see here is um, a plot of how the scale of the grid changes from top, top is up here, to bottom, which is uh, somewhere here. So on the x-axis here, you have the position along this long axis. So here, zero is the top here. 50 is somewhere in the middle down here. And then on the y-axis, you have the size of the grid, or simply just the distance between each of these fields here. And then, which begins in this rat approximately at 40 centimeters and ends at around 100 centimeters, or we couldn't follow it further. And each dot here is then one cell. And what you then see is that, as we showed initially, it begins with a small scale at the top, and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So begins small and gets bigger and bigger. But what you also see is that it is actually a step-like increase. So there are discrete steps and very little in between. And uh, we can show statistically that this is extremely reliable. Every animal has this step-like uh, increase. But uh, there's also another property. So that means we have then multiple maps. We have at least four, maybe five, maybe because we weren't able to go all the way down. Perhaps there are still a few more, but probably less than 10 different maps. So we had different maps with different scales. But then when we know there are different scales, we may wonder, is there any relationship between the scales of the different maps? So then we called the smallest one M1, module one, the next one M2, module two, and then module three, module four. And then what we did was simply to divide the scale, 50 centimeters for M2, by the scale of the uh, first module, which is 40 centimeters, so M2 by, divided by M1, or M3 divided by M2, or M4 divided by M3, to see if there was any uh, relationship. And what it actually turned out was that there is a fixed ratio so that to get from one scale to the next, you multiply by a fixed factor, which is approximately 1.42 on average. Then from M2 to M3, you multiply again by the same factor, 1.42. And then you multiply again by the same factor to get the next level, and so on. So this is just like in a geometric uh, progression. And of course, why does the brain do it like this? That's very fascinating, because this is certainly not random. Um, we don't know that. Some people have tried to, actually physicists have tried to calculate whether this is the optimal way of organizing space in the brain. And uh, uh, claims are that, yes, it is, because this having organizing space like uh, discrete modules with a fixed uh, factor, or, uh, like uh, in a geometric progression, is actually the best way to uh, uh, represent space or to create uh, an internal uh, map of space in the brain uh, with the highest possible resolution and using at the same time the minimum number of cells. So we'll see if that is true. But uh, um, this is at least shows that the map with the grid cells is highly, highly organized. Then let me just tell that there are also other types of cells in the same brain area. So these cells were actually discovered already in the 1980s by Jim Rank, uh, who found not in that area, but in the neighboring area, some cells that uh, did not have any particular relationship to where the rat was. So you see the dots are all over, essentially. 
same here. But uh, the firing of these cells were strongly related to the direction of the rat as it was walking around. So what you see here is firing rate as a function of direction. So it means that this cell is only active when the rat is going to the left. This same here. And this one is only active when the rat is going in the box up towards the top left. And same again here. So these are direction cells, so they're more like a compass. And then a few years later, we found yet another type of cell. We call them border cells for the obvious reason that they fire only, they are active only when the rat is along the borders. So this is a box, again, like the one you saw. Uh, red shows that the cell is only active uh, when the rat is on the right wall here. And then you can change the box. You can stretch it this way or that way. The cell remains active just on that wall. You can put it into a different room. Then it chooses another wall, the left wall here. You can insert the wall. It fires along that wall too. And, you, and it's not only for walls. It, also, if you put the rat on the table, it will also fire along the edges. So it really indicates where the local borders of the environment uh, are. And finally, uh, this is just uh, two years old, we uh, uh, found yet another type of cell in the same area, uh, which we call speed cells, for the obvious reason that they uh, respond to the speed of the rat as it's walking around. So these colored plots essentially just show that the um, cell is active everywhere in the box. So this is, again, the top view, and you see there's color everywhere, which means the cell just uh, fires everywhere. So there's no particular preference for place. But what you see in these line diagrams is that the firing rate, which is uh, on the y-axis, I mean, how often the cell is active, uh, increases with the speed of the rat as it's walking around. So this is one cell, another cell, another one, and you can see it's simply, these cells are simply a speedometer because they indicate to the rest of the brain how fast the rat is running. Here you see some examples of it down here. So these are seven different cells over a period of two minutes. Each cell has a distinct color, and then in the background in gray you see the speed of the rat as it's walking around. And what you can see, for example, if you focus on the yellow one here, is how closely the activity of the cell actually follows the speed of the rat. It almost is a pure reflection of the speed. So that means that in this area, now we have the speed cells, which provide information about how the rat actually is moving around. You have the border cells, which tell about the local borders. You have direction or head direction cells, which tell about the direction. And then you have the grid cells, which tell about uh, or at least contain information about distances because it's a regular pattern. And then how is all of this put together? It's still something we don't really know, but we know that within this little, little area of the brain, uh, you have intermingled among each other four different types of cells, there may be possibly even more, that have very specialized functions, but all take part in making, uh, or m making a map in the brain of the external environment, much like Tolman suggested some uh, uh, 70 years or almost 80 years ago. So uh, is this, now you may all wonder, is this just rats and mice? No, that is not the case, because uh, this is uh, 
an evolutionary tree for mammals. So uh, you see the rodents, they branch out here. So you have mice here, and rats are very close, squirrels. Uh, so it's no wonder that, uh, that what we found in the rats also was true in mice. But then a few years later, they were found also in bats in a group in Israel, uh, Nachum Ulanovsky, uh, where they actually, f and why is it surprising they found them in bats? Because that's because bats are not small rats and they're not small mice. They are actually uh, on a completely different branch of the mammalian evolutionary tree. And then finally, uh, they were found in primates, so in monkeys, in macaques, and uh, even in humans. Uh, so in humans, uh, how do you record them in humans? That's when uh, people who have severe epilepsy have uh, electrodes in the brain because uh, you record uh, from the brain in order to identify, find out where the epilepsy starts and to find out whether and where you want to make a surgery in order to stop the epilepsy. And this is epilepsy that can't be treated by, by drugs. But then when you do this, you also pick up the signals from the cells and you can also then see that they actually have similar cells there too. So grid cells, uh, border cells, head direction cells, they seem to be present in, uh, across, widely across mammals, probably in, in all mammals. And then of course raises questions whether they exist also in non-mammalian species, which we don't know anything about at the moment, but, uh, but uh, we'll see. So now, in order to distribute my time, uh, how long shall I, uh, how much time left? Half an hour, okay, good. Well then, I just continue. <laughs> All right, so I want to, in the first, uh, out of these three, four, actually four blocks, for small blocks. So this is the first. I want to actually say a little bit more about the difference between the two types of maps that we have in our brain. So I told you about the place cells, and then I told you about uh, that. That's in the area that's called hippocampus. And then I told you about the other area, entorhinal cortex, which contains a mixture of grid cells and direction cells and border cells and speed cells and everything. So how are these maps different? And the first thing I want to say is that uh, the, the entorhinal map, that's the last map, is very, very rigid. And uh, I'll try to explain that by showing one cartoon-like example. So this is, again, the three grid cells that you remember, one in green, one in blue, and one in red. And they, I said they had different phases, so different XY uh, coordinates, or so shifted relative to each other. So you can imagine that the shift here is also illustrated here, in the sense that you can see the blue one is, is uh, at the top left of the green one, and the red one is to the right of the blue one. So this is the pattern that repeats itself all over the box. So this is what you get if you record in one room or in one condition. But if you now go to, for example, this is what you would record here. But if, if you now go to the other lecture room over there, would the cells behave in the same way? And that's exactly the case. So when we record the same activity from another room, we again find that the blue one is to the left of the red one and to the up, up to the left from the green one and so on. So the pattern between the cells is completely maintained and also, of course, when you go back to the first room. So it's just like it's the relationships between the cells or the grids are stuck. They're whatever you do, 
the cells maintain that relationship. So it's in a way one single map that you apply everywhere you are in the world. Um, yeah, so is that a good thing? Well, let's wait and see. Um, I just want to say that this doesn't only apply to the grid cells, it even applies to the other cells. So let's, for example, look at the border cells. Here you have one border cell that in, uh, fires on the left side here, and then the environment here is rotated 90 degrees, and then it fires up here to, at the top, and then goes back uh, to the left again. But then here's another cell, and what happens to that one? Well, th that one also rotates 90 degrees here and goes back. Or what happens if you change the room? Here's one that fires on the right side, and then in the other room fires on the left side, so it flips over to the opposite side. And same does this one, flips over to the opposite side. Or if you look at the direction cells, that one uh, fires on the right side here. Um, yeah, sorry, let's look at this one, it's better here. This one fires uh, uh, to the top here, and then takes a turn to 90 degrees here, and then goes back. And same with this one, also takes a turn to the right, 90 degrees, and goes back. So it's a rigid system where every cell switches uh, or swaps in, in the same way as every other cell. So it's one rigid map that is applied everywhere where the, uh, where the rat is. So then if this is such a, a rigid map, or what we often say a low-dimensional map, it just means that it, it has not much opportunity for a variation, it does the same thing all the time. If that's the case, then could we imagine that these maps are actually played out even when uh, um, rats sleep? Um, so that's a question that uh, Richard Gardner, who is a postdoc in our lab, is currently uh, working on, and he has some results already. So he actually recorded from these grid maps during sleep. There are two types of sleep, both in uh, humans and in uh, rats. So one type is called slow wave sleep, and the other is called REM sleep. So REM sleep is uh, when we uh, dream, and uh, the other type, slow wave sleep, is all the rest of the time when the brain is really just... Uh, uh, going at a much slower speed and in a very synchronized way. Um, so REM sleep is almost like the active when we are awake, because then if you record from the brain, it's a lot of activity, and that's also when the dreams occur. And the other one is, is when uh, everything is going much slower. So he recorded from those two states, and then again recorded grid cells like this, so now let's look at the relationship between two grid cells. So these are two grid cells that we say are in phase. That means that they're active at the same places. So you can see that, look for example, the dot up here is, this is cell one and cell two fires in the, is active in the same place. And uh, the same with one here, there's one here too. So they're very, very similar, they overlap. So if they overlap, that means that if you make a plot of uh, when one cell is active compared to the other cell, then at zero uh, seconds is when the other cell is active. So this is time relative to when cell one is active, and this is the firing rate of cell two. And that shows that when cell one is active at zero here, then cell two is also active. So they are in phase, as we say. So this is just when the rat is out running here. But then, what happens when the rat sleeps in slow wave sleep? Yes, same thing. So that the cell, when this cell is active in sleep, 
then the other cell is also active in sleep. So they maintain their co-activity. And the same with the cells, two cells that are out of phase. I mean, these have opposite phases. So you see the, the blobs are in different places. So, and that's also shown here that the plot, that there's a dip here, which means that if one cell is active, the other one is not. And that dip is also present uh, in, uh, in sleep. And if you now plot that for all the cells, this is uh, all cell pairs, this is what it looks like. So what you see here in this, what I often call a sunset diagram, is uh, this is, it contains actually 1,267 lines. And each line is a similar uh, plot to this. It's just that color indicates the, the, the height of the peak here. So it's, it's low, 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 and then yellow means high, and then it gets low again. And you do this for all 1,267 cell pairs. Uh, so, so this is just the organized ordered from the ones that are highly coactive in the box here to those that are very, have very opposite activity, and the black means that they are out of phase. But then the question is, those that are co-active in the box here, are they also co-active in the sleep? And yes, you can see, because you see essentially the same pattern in sleep. So those that are simultaneously active in the box are also simultaneously active in sleep. Those that are not active together in the box in the open field are also not active in sleep. And the same, exactly the same happens if you try the other sleep state too, when the REM sleep or the dream sleep. So again, those that are in phase, they uh, are still in phase. It's somewhat weaker because there's much less data because the REM sleep only happens uh, a, little, a short time. And those that are out of phase remain out of phase. So what that means is that the co-activity, the co-activity of the grid cells in the wake state is actually carried over to the sleep state. So they maintain, the entire map is, maintains its relationships even when the animals are, are asleep. So it's really rigid and it seems almost like it's just one map, at least within each module of grid cells, it's just one map that is played out all the time. Uh, so it's tempting then to suggest that this is um, created by uh, the connectivity of uh, the cells and that that is uh, sort of uh, fixed because of that. So this was then the enterinal map or the grid map or the, uh, but then what about the play cell map? Yeah, well, okay, before I go to the, just to sum up, uh, this is just another way of saying it. So this is a map, but you can then imagine that the grid map is applied wherever, whether you are out on an island or whether you are in the mountains, it's the same map that is used all over again. But the, the, inter, the important part of this is that when you use a map all over again, wherever you are, it actually doesn't care about the content. So the, whether the content is uh, the, the layout of this room or of another lecture room or of the cafeteria outside or whatever, it doesn't care, the, the map is uh, the, exactly the same. So this is very different from the place map in the hippocampus, where the in hippocampus is where the place cells were found first. Because there, if you compare uh, different environments, then we call this environment A, this is a box A, this is another box, circular box B, and then the rat goes back to A afterwards so in this sequence. What you will see is that there is no relationship between where the cell is active in 
in A, and where or even whether it is active in B. So in this case, this cell is totally silent in B. It doesn't send a single signal. And then it comes back to A here. Whereas this cell fires at the bottom here, then at the top here, and at the bottom there. This one uh, fires uh, in the middle to the right here, and then up here. But essentially, if you do this for hundreds of cells, you will see that there's absolutely no relationship between where the cell is active here and where the cell is active here. So any combination uh, of... Uh, if you compare uh, two cells and then ask whether two cells... That's not the case. So it's very, very different from the, the entorhinal map. And this is just a way to show it. So this is an experiment where we actually took rats to 11 different labs, 11 different rooms, and recorded their play selectivity in each of these 11 rooms. All of them were very, very similar. They contained the same boxes. And then we correlated, compared activity between all of these rooms. It's called then F1, N1, N2, N3, N4, and so on with each other. So, of course, if you correlate the same room, for example, F1 with F1, you get one, because they are, they are similar. So ignore the line in the diagonal, that's obvious. But then any comparison of, all, of any other uh, room, so for example, if you compare room number N4 with the room number N1, it's blue. Everything, essentially everything is blue, and blue means low correlation. That means that they're very, very different, as different as they can be, completely random. So the only exception where you have higher, warmer colors here are the cases when we actually repeated the room. So, for example, when, when uh, this is when room F1 was, uh, is the same room as F2 because it's familiar room 1 and familiar room 2. Or when, for example, N1 was recorded on two different occasions uh, here, or when N6 was recorded on two different occasions here. Then the activity is repeated. But the important thing is that all other comparisons of those 11 rooms, when you take all the place cells and compare them with each other, they are totally different. And that means that actually in the hippocampus, you don't have... There's not one map that is applied all over again, but it's probably hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of maps that, uh, that each are uh, individual in a sense. So this is the grid map, one pattern, one rigid pattern. This is the play cell map that contains many different maps that are all unique. And what does that tell us? Well, it first tells us that this is actually a quite smart way of the brain to solve the problem of of how you, uh, uh, of how you uh, store space. Because uh, it is, I would think it is quite uh, useful for the brain to have a metric or a, a measurement system like uh, the grid cells could provide that is just one that you apply all over again. Like if you have a ruler, you don't want to invent a new ruler each time you use it. You want to use the same ruler in this room as in another room as in another room. You want the metrics to be constant. Whereas uh, the content of the maps, the things that are in the rooms or the experiences you have in the rooms, 
those have to be individualized because you want to remember what happens in this, this room and remember it as something different from what you experienced maybe out in the cafeteria or whatever. So splitting the metrics and the content is actually probably a very um, economic way for the brain to deal with space and with memory. But then, if these place cells are actually uh, contain individual maps that take care of what happened in every single environment, that then implies that then this area of the brain must be quite important for memory, and indeed it is. And that brings me... Let's see, why does it not move? Huh? That's strange. Let's see. No. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. <laughs> it's old. So um, that brings me to where, um, because people have worked on the hippocampus for many years, and it actually, before the place cells were discovered, it was already known that uh, hippocampus was not important, not known to be important for space, but for memory. And that is actually started out with a patient, H.M., is no... He was uh, known by his initials, H.M., until he died in 2008. So Henry Molaison was his name. But he was actually already in 1953, I think, operated because of very severe epilepsy, like I told you. And uh, um, quite often this starts in the hippocampus. So what the surgeon did was to remove the hippocampus on uh, both uh, sides of the brain. And uh, then... To their big surprise, well, first the epilepsy disappeared, so that was good. But the bad news was that the memory disappeared too. And uh, uh, all kinds of ep daily episodic memories, as we often call them, th memories for things that happen, uh, daily life memories, they were also gone. And then later it's been shown then that uh, patients who have damage in that area, they suffer from the same all the time. So it's, it's, in a way, it's the same symptoms as in... in uh, in, uh, in, in dementia, that you don't really rec uh, remember anything more, anything uh, uh, of your daily experiences for, uh, for any, any significant time. So how is this possible? How can this area of the brain both do space and memory? And uh, actually it can. It, it may even be a very functional way of doing it because if you think about the, the, your daily life memories or what we call episodic memories, they always have a content of space. You always remember it, things happening in a space, in a location. And uh, probably this area uses location as a tag, and then you put on top of the location, you put uh, memories of the things that happen in those locations, and they are then very uniquely tied together. And which evolved first, whether it was space or memory, we don't know, but uh, uh, at least they go very closely together. And this is exactly what you see in Alzheimer's disease, for example, that there are two things that are lost early on. It's space and memory, because it's the same system. So, now, how many minutes? Ten? Okay, yeah. I can do this part quite fast, because it, it's a question that obviously uh, uh, comes up then. Um, if this system of internal maps, is that innate or is it acquired? So this is the work of Ingvild Kruger, who did this for her doctoral thesis. Um, so um, what we know is uh, from work earlier in our lab and uh, also in the O'Keefe lab 
is that the different types of cells are actually present very early on. Um, so this is at postnatal day 17, when rats are 17 days old and so on, you see they already have play cells. These are border cells, again, 17 days old and so on, you already see they are present. And these are the head direction cells, which you can even find before they open their eyes. So they are really, really uh, uh, early on. So in that sense, it suggests this is really hardwired. You don't really need much experience. But there's one little exception, and that's the grid cells, because the grid cells tend to become uh, f functional or, or hexagonal pattern only at approximately four weeks of age, P28, postnatal day 28, which is much later than the others, which were already mature around uh, two weeks of age. So um, there are, there's a tendency for cells to fire in a triangular or hexagonal way, but it's very, very um, diffuse, so that um, obviously there must be something happening during those two weeks. Uh, why are the grid cells so slow to develop? Could it be that these cells actually need some sort of experience? So to find out then what uh, Ingvild did was that you trained animals, you raised animals in three different environments. First, a standard environment where they live in cages and have their toys and climb and things like that. Uh, and then two experimental in environments. One is a cube like this, and one is a sphere where they have no walls. And then the question is then, what's the role of these walls? Are walls important when you grow up? Is that important for your spatial maps to develop? So what we found is that when these, so these animals, these rats actually grew up in these environments for almost three months. And then after three months, then for the first time they were exposed to a box of the one of the type I showed you when they walked around and chased chocolate uh, crumbles. And what you now see is recordings from cells from each of these groups. And they are ranked from left, the ones that have the most grid-like patterns, uh, to the uh, to right the, that have less. And uh, this is the top 20% of the cells. So this is the sphere group, the cube group, and the enriched group. And you, the enriched group, you can see there are many grid cells. And even in the cube group, there are proportionally very many grid cells. Whereas in the sphere groups, there's only crap, really. It doesn't look like a grid pattern. So this is the statistical threshold for, for measuring it as a grid pattern, but it's really not much. This is the proportion of grid cells. And you can see on the first day when they walk out in that uh, open box, there's not really much grid pattern in those that didn't have any walls when they were uh, raised. Uh, this recovers in the end, so when they have walked a week in the box, finally they start getting grid cells, so you can see here and here. So this is just a measure of the symmetry or the grid-like grid structure. You can see then that those, this is the cube group, this is the, the enriched group, and this is the, the group that grew up in the sphere. So they do catch up uh, almost, not entirely, but... Uh, it means that with repeated experience, they can compensate for the loss. And uh, is this something that happens if you do the same to an adult rat? No, because this, uh, this is the young group that grew, grew up for three months uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the sphere. But the blue trace here is uh, 
the ones that uh, were exposed for three months at adult age, and you see they're not different from the others. So this only has an impairment, uh, causes an impairment if the rat actually has this lack of uh, wall experience when they're young. So it means that, um, that although the system seems to be very much hardwired, it is not entirely hardwired, so there may be a period when you actually need to be exposed to regular geometries uh, of the world to actually develop the system to be fully functional. So in the final minutes, I want to say a little bit about, since this is, seems to have strong hardwired components, what's the way that this circuit of the brain, this area of the brain actually matures? So this is work of Flavio Donato, was just published last week. Uh, and uh, what he asked was, is there a way that you can actually measure the maturation state of different areas of uh, the hippocampal uh, system and the enteroanal cortex? So he did that in several different ways, but one was to use the protein double cortin, which is a kind of Im immaturity marker, because this protein is necessary for the branching of the cells, which you saw in the first video. You saw they have big, big branches. That's where the connections form to other cells. For these branches to develop uh, in the young, very young nervous system, then they need this protein double cortin. And when the branches finally are made and the brain is more or less uh, stable, then this protein goes down as not really expressed anymore. So this is really a protein that's present in immature neurons. So you can use those, the presence of double cortin then to find immature neurons. And then he then used uh, confocal microscopes, found neurons in blue color here, and then cells that had this protein in, uh, in purple here, and then found, counted the cells that actually uh, were neurons and expressed, uh, uh, had double cortin. So this is just how he did it, I skipped that, but this is the way to validate the method. So he used adult brains when there's no further development uh, to check that uh, he actually counted the approximately right or the expected number of cells. And in most areas of the brains, like the ones here that is called MEC, L2, L5, CA3, CA1, there's nothing essentially. But in one area, which is called dentate gyrus, DG here, he found that there were many, uh, many immature neurons, about 5%. That's exactly as expected because we know that in this area, there's one or two areas in the brain where newborn cells are still, cells are still being born in, in adult uh, brains. So we had a way to measure immature neurons. And then what he found that he then measured, um, counted immature neurons at different stages of development. So this is day number five, eight, 11, and so on, up to 30 days of age. And then the fraction of mature cells, so cells that no longer have this pro protein. And then there are the different areas in different colors. There's the different areas of this hippocampus circuit, which I showed in the beginning. So it begins with what is called MEC layer two, and then dentate and CA3, CA1, subiculum, and uh, MEC layer five. So it's a loop like this. But what he found is that uh, the fraction mature cells begins to go up to adult levels first in this first stage here, MEC layer two. Then comes the next one, CA3 here, and then CA1 here later in red, 
and then subiculum here, and then the deep layers of the MEC here, and finally, something that's called lateral entorhinal cortex, which is very, very slow. So each of these areas actually develop after each other, begins with this one, and then comes that one, and that one, and that one, and that goes on for actually two weeks. And if you then, um, you can then ask, uh, is each of these necessary for the next one to develop? So the way he did that was that now he can use some interesting uh, molecular tools. So what he did was that he, uh, at postnatal day one, when the rats were, uh, the mice were one day old, he then injected using ultrasound, injected into the medial entorhinal cortex, the, 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 the space area, injected a virus that caused uh, the expression of a synthetic protein, protein that doesn't exist in the, in the normal brain. Uh, so a receptor, and then at, uh, so that was inserted into that part of the brain, and then at uh, adult, uh, at later, at uh, the age of um, uh, for, uh, day 14 to 20, he then injected a substance using mini pumps that's called CNO, which acts specifically on that drug, and has the effect of simply turning off those cells for a week from day 14 to 20. So, then he began by turning off this first step here, MEC, as it's called, layer two, because he hit selectively those cells, and then asked what happens to all the other ones when you turn off the first one. And that's what's shown here. So what you see here in, in black is the number of mature, uh, proportional mature cells uh, in the different regions through this circuit. Um, so you see it's high and then goes down as the further away you get. But the red ones are what you see when you turn off that area. And you can see that the whole rest of the system is turned off. It never gets mature as long as you do this. So uh, this is when you turn off the first step. But if you now turn off the uh, subsequent step in what is called the hippocampus, then you also turn off the rest from there on. And if you turn off a late stage, the lateral entorhinal cortex, you turn off only that. So... Um, he then even was able to go into this area, entorhinal cortex, where we had the grid cells and on, and then turn off selectively one type of cell and not the other. Because in this area, there are two types of cells. They're called stellate cells and pyramidal cells, so two, two excitatory types of cells. And he can use the fact that they are born at different times during when the embryo develops. So this is the proportion at embryonic day 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. So very early on, for example, on embryonic day 12, then nearly all cells that are born are stellate cells. And then late on day 16, nearly all that are born are pyramidal cells. And that allowed him to then use uh, uh, a virus uh, to go into, to deliver genes into the cells that were born on embryonic day 12, those were stellate cells, and he could do it uh, on E16 in other mice to deliver um, the gene into, uh, into pyramidal cells. And then this, uh, he, in different ways, I, this is too detailed to explain, but that allowed him, he, he then targeted the cells that were born on 12 and on 16, and then he could use the same approach once again, and then finally, uh, when they were 14 to 16 days old, could he use this drug that targets the cells that are born either on that day or on that day? And then what he found was that if you turned off 
the so-called stellate cells, then he again gets this blockade. If it turns off the pyramidal cells, there's no effect at all. And what that shows, and this is in the final slide, is that um, these cells that are called stellate cells, which are actually the same cells that are grid cells, many of them are, are grid cells, not all, but many of them are grid cells, they are actually necessary for starting this sequence of maturation through this brain circuit. So if you stop uh, activity of these cells, none of the subsequent stages here will reach a mature state. The only thing that can continue to develop if you stop activity here is cells themselves. So that's kind of uh, resistant against uh, anything that happens, whereas all the other cells here to reach a mature state actually depends on activity in these cells at a certain stage of development. Uh, so, yeah, okay, I want to say a little bit more. It's one minute, okay? <laughs> because I want to extend it back to Alzheimer's disease uh, and neurodegenerative disorders. Because I said now a lot about space and uh, in passing mentioned memory. So this system, the hippocampus and surrounding areas are important for, for that. But um, as I also, uh, I think I mentioned it, but the entorhinal cortex, which is the area that contains the grid cells and so on, is actually the uh, very often the first area where you get clear uh, cell loss in Alzheimer's disease. And often this happens before, uh, before uh, patients actually get any diagnosis of uh, Alzheimer's disease. So this is just a volume of entorhinal cortex shown in people who later did not get Alzheimer's disease or those that later get Alzheimer's disease. So this is, uh, dates back to early work of Brad Hyman. Um, so and this fits with what we all know, namely that, uh, this, uh, that spatial disorientation and loss of memory are among the first symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And yeah, we also know how common the disease is and how much it grows with age and what it costs. This is just the numbers. And we even uh, know that our population is increasing. We are getting older and older. So just for over a period of 15 years, the average uh, life expectancy is two, three, four years more all over the world. So based on those estimates, the number of people, if there is no treatment of Alzheimer, will actually increase uh, quite substantially in the years to come. So it's important to... to, um, to find a solution on the uh, Alzheimer problem. We still, still don't have it, but I believe that by understanding how this system works in the normal brain, that will help us to actually find a way to treat that disease. And then finally, uh, I think there is optimism. I'm going back to where I started with the movie there. I think it is possible to understand how uh, many of the most complex uh, cognitive functions are working. We have seen it through one example that I gave, namely the sense of space, that we can actually say how brain cells work to create something that results in distinct behaviors. Um, I'll just then finally say that uh, many, many people have contributed to this, so I just mentioned some of them here, of course, Maybrit Moser, and then Marianne Fien, Torkel Hafting, Sula Molden in the initial discovery of grid cells, and also collaborators, Menowitter, particularly Bruce McNaughton and Carl Barnes have been important, Alessandro Treves, 
and uh, these are names. Flavio Donato was the development work, Ingvild Krude, the, the, the sphere work, and uh, there's a lot, or many, many people, um, but also many people have uh, paid for it. So uh, that, I think, concludes my lecture. Sorry for going over the time, but uh, I hope you had fun. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.